Well, over the uh, early weeks of this year, we have started to look at uh, a New Testament letter called 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read that just now. We're going to read a part of that just now, so we're going to have our Bible reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 17. We'll read from verse 17 uh, to the end of that chapter. Uh, so if you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1144. 1144. What we, what we normally do is we, we read this early on in our service, and then later on we, we take some time to look at that and see what God is saying to us through His Word, how we should respond to it. So we're going to be doing that today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. This is page 1144 of the Bible. And we remember that this is God's Word. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. We trust that God will help us understand his word to us today. Well, if you have a, a Bible handy, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 1, those verses we read earlier. It's page 1144. We're going to think our way through this passage together. I don't know what you think of whenever you think of the church in terms of pictures of the church. Down through uh, Christian history, there's been all sorts of images used in Christian art of the church, things like cities and so on. But, but one of the common ones has been uh, that of a boat uh, floating on the water. Uh, so lots of biblical warrant for that, the ark floating on the tempestuous see the, the disciples in the boat with Jesus in the midst of the storm and so on, the idea of God's people uh, being kept safe in the boat. Now, the problem, of course, of a boat 
or with a boat is what happens when the water gets into the boat. And rather than the church sailing over the world, as it were, the world gets into the church. The world's thinking and the world's values become the church's thinking and the church's values. And that's always been a challenge for the church. It is today, and it was in the very early church as well. It was in Corinth. We've been starting to to understand a little bit of the setting of this letter over these last few weeks, Paul has brought the gospel to Corinth as a missionary, second missionary journey. He stays with them 18 months, and he moves on then east to Ephesus, where he, he stays two years. And as he's there, he hears things about the church in Corinth, and he, he hears that they're struggling over certain issues, and he writes this letter back in order to help them with their struggles, to correct some of the the problems that they're facing. And one of the basic problems is that the world has got into the church. The, the thinking of the, the, the world, the thinking of Corinth, the value of Corinth, has become the thinking of the church in Corinth. Or maybe we should say that the, the believers who've become part of the church are, are still thinking like the world around them. One of the characteristics of, of Corinth were all sorts of issues with it as a city, but there was a sort of a, a pride in, in Corinth. There was a, a love of things that were a, a shiny and, and grand and impressive, as it were, strong and, and shiny. And you might know that, that in ancient architecture, there were a number of different ways that columns could be uh, topped. Traditionally, there were, there were three. There was the Doric, there was the Ionic and then I guess the Corinthians looked around and said, wait, we're going to make our, our columns an awful lot better than any of those, and, and, and we're going to make them really, really flowery and ostentatious. And, 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 and they, they just liked that sort of thing as a, as a people, and they liked flowery and ornate speech. So great orators would come, and they would visit Corinth, and they would pack venues, and, and they would enthrall people with their flowery language and, and their, their command of, of words. So that was the sort of the, the culture of the, the city, and as people became Christians, they, they carried some of that culture into the church. And so the church got enticed with things that looked impressive, that, that were strong and shiny, and that sounded wise. Wisdom was a big issue. The world had got into the church. So what did Paul do? Well, well he corrects some of that. And where we're looking at today is, is one of the places that he does that, and, and he shows that, that really what the world treasures so often is of very little significance in God's eyes, and what the world despises as far as God's concerned is actually what is truly wise. That's what he's, that's what he's doing. That's what we're thinking about today. So, so two things just to say today that sort of sum up where we're going. The first is this. The cross is foolish to the world, but it is what God uses to save. The cross is foolish to the world, but it's what God uses to save. You see verse 18? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being, the sa being saved, it is the power of God. Now, you know how we categorize people, all sorts of labels put on people all the time. Think about it, rich and poor, black and white, unionist and nationalist, Protestant, Catholic, resident, incomer, so on and so on and so on. And here we're introduced to, to one 
really important division that actually matters, that cuts across all other categories. You see it in verse 18, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So everyone who has ever lived or will ever live falls into one of these two categories. And and a million years from now, it won't matter whether we were rich or poor or black or white or unionist or nationalist, but it will matter and continue to matter whether we are perishing or we were those who were being saved. And you notice that the issue that, that... divides those two groups or that, that establishes those two groups is their reaction to, their, their stance towards the message of the cross. They either see it as foolishness or the power of God. That's really important, so let's think about that a little bit. First of all, what's the, what's the message of the cross? Well, all sorts of ways we could describe this, but it is focused on Jesus Christ. It is that Jesus Christ who was, who was he? He was perfect man and perfect God. He, he went to the cross to die in the place of sinners, of us. And there he atones for sin, and through faith in him, we may have a right standing with God, be eternally welcomed by him. So, so it's, it's Christ in our place. That's the cross. And some people may hear that, hear that, and, and they, they say, that's foolishness, exactly as Shelley was saying earlier. That's foolishness. What sort of God would do that? Or what sort of God would demand that? Or, or there's no God at all? Or I don't need that? There are a hundred ways to consider the message of the cross to be foolish. But what this tells us is that that means that there are a hundred ways to perish. Because it's clear that this is the only way. That's picked up in verses 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, the Corinthians were really struck by the wisdom of the world. They thought it was impressive and, and uh, uh, demanded their, their sort of uh, adoration. But what it is saying here is that human wisdom can't get you to God. You, you can't get to God by thinking it out, by human intelligence or deduction. Human thinking can't save you. It's not saying that reason isn't important or helpful, that we shouldn't use our minds to think about God. We're doing that right now, I hope. But it is saying that by itself, the best of human thinking even can't get us to God. There's no way to God that starts with you or me. It has to come from him. I think about this. I think of the the, the rescue of the 33 Chilean miners. You remember that was back in 2010, would you believe? Those men were incapable of getting to the surface themselves. They couldn't do it. It was beyond their capability. And so the rescue had to start from outside of themselves, from above them, as it were. And it's like that with us. And you see, what the cross shows us here is that this rescue has actually taken place. God has made a way. He has drilled down into our darkness by the cross, and he calls on us to trust in what he has done, to trust in what Jesus has done. And this is the other reaction to the cross, not saying it's foolishness, 
But others look at the cross and they, they believe. They, they, they say, as we're going to sing at the end, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And, and they find that message to be then the power of God, as, as Paul says elsewhere, the power of God unto salvation. Through the message of the cross, God saves. He, he transforms. He, he takes people who are perishing and, and he turns them into people who are being saved. Now, whenever we think about that, these are really, really important issues. We've got to take stock, really, don't we? And the clear question is, is what is my reaction to the cross? Because it's one of these two reactions, really. It will either be foolishness or the power of God. We can reject it in a hundred ways and say, this is not for me. Or we can say, this is exactly what I need and continue to need. And the Bible is really stark, isn't it? It's saying that those two stances towards the cross take us in really different directions, to a really dangerous position or to a marvelous position. And if we're here today and we're thinking, Do you know, I've spent my life really thinking that Christianity is just foolish or doesn't make sense or or that it's not for me, then, then maybe today we, we, we begin to think, I, I really need to wrestle with this and investigate this for myself because there's something here, isn't there? Talk to someone who's a Christian. Paul, Paul highlighted ways in which we can get this wrong. We, we, if, we, if we follow our hunches, if we just try to sort of dig our way up from our darkness ourselves, we're, we're going to get it wrong. And, and Paul was dealing with big groups in society then who were getting it wrong. The big division through society in, in that time was the, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Greeks, as they're sometimes called. And uh, Jews and Gentiles had their own tendency, their own particular cultural patterns in which they went wrong as they thought about God. Jews, he said, demand signs. Now, that's a generalization, but you remember uh, there were times whenever Jesus was on earth and, and, and uh, Jewish leaders would come to us and say, uh, give us a sign. Uh, you come down from the cross, for example, if you're the son of God. And, and that might sound like an earnest desire for truth. Some of us have prayed, Lord, if you're there, show yourself to me. That's a, a good prayer to pray. But in, in this case... It was actually an attempt to have God at their beck and call, to sort of bargain with him, to say, you do this, God, and then, well, I'll, I'll take you into consideration. I'll, I'll maybe believe, but I'm really going to come to you in my terms. I'll, I'll consider you if you do this for me. And that's really not unusual, is it? We, we want the kind of God, so here, here's left to ourselves, or we just try to figure this out by ourselves, or we go with our hunch we may end up looking for the sort of God that we can control. Sort of God who's like an extra emergency service, someone we call on whenever we're in trouble. Sometimes we find that, don't we? Somebody gets into trouble and they call out to God. Sometimes it's genuine. Praise the Lord for that. But sometimes it's just like these, these Jews, do this for me, Lord, and then I'll, I'll see how we go. Get me out of this hole, and then we'll see what happens. Give me a God who will do stuff for me. 
But, but there was another way that, that, that people then went wrong, and we see it still here today. It was from the, the Greeks or the Gentiles. Greeks seek wisdom. It, that was their sort of particular characteristic. Remember, uh, uh, earlier on, uh, John, or Paul was at uh, Athens, and, and the, the Greek philosophers were debating with him. They had all sorts of ideas about gods. They'd come up with dozens and dozens of gods. But, but in, in their thinking, the gods that they had come up with were sort of distant and disinterested in their day-to-day lives. That allowed them to speculate about them, to ask them for favors whenever they needed them. But they were basically gods who didn't demand too much. Occasional worship if you needed something. But other than that, get on with your own life. That was the wisdom that Greek thinking led to. Now, that's pretty common today too, isn't it? I-, I want a God, people say, who won't interfere with my life too much, won't demand too much of me, won't tell me uh, how I'm to use my time or, or, or my, my ethics or whatever it might be, occasional worship. I don't want him to interfere with my day-to-day life, a God who keeps his distance. See, if you, if you try to figure out God, that, that's what you might come to by yourself. You, you might think that, that the sort of God that there is or the sort of God that you need is, is one who's going to keep his distance, but it's sort of, you know, comforting to know that he's there. But, but Paul says, look, this is how people go wrong as far as God's concerned, but, but we preach not the God that we think we need, but the God who's actually there, Christ crucified, the one who gave his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. All human wisdom falls short. It leads to a dead end because the God that we think we need is not the God we actually need and not the God who is there. Christ crucified is the God who is there. Verse 22, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Doesn't make sense to Greeks that a God would want, to be in, it would want to be involved in their lives. It was a stumbling block to Jews because they were looking for a Messiah who would, who would never die on a cross. So it was stumbling block and it was foolish. There's a, a, an ancient cartoon uh, that has been uh, unearthed on, in, a, in a cave wall or a building wall uh, from around this time. And uh, it's a picture of a, a human figure on a cross with a donkey's head and a, another human figure bowing before it. And underneath it says, Alex Amonos worships his God. He's making fun of a believer called Alex Amonos saying, what a fool you are to worship a God like this, an ass who would give his life on a cross. Now, that's how it's always been, you see. Christianity will not make sense to the world by itself. Judged by its standards, it's foolish. And yet, actually, what Paul's saying here is that that's how God saves people. That's how he makes people his own. And one of the things that that we always need to decide whether you're hearing about this for the first time or you've been following Jesus for 50 or 70 years, is that we will cling to this Jesus who is despised as foolish. And that means that we've got to get prepared to be seen as foolish too, like Alex Amonos. He's in glory now, 2,000 years later. 
big issue for all of us, isn't it? Sometimes maybe for our young people, we become aware that the opinions of others really begin to matter. And, and we've got to, to figure out that, that actually, if we're trying to have a foot in both camps and, and be cool and credible and be a Christian, it's not going to work. We've got to be prepared to side with the one that is considered foolish. Jesus, you know, often called people publicly. You ever wondered why he did that? He didn't uh, slip up to the disciples who were mending their nets or Matthew who was at the tax collector's booth and, and whisper in their ear and say, look, after you finish work, pop around and see me. I've got a proposition for you. We can have a quiet chat. No, he, he called them publicly. Why did he do that? Because he knows that there is a a cleaving to Jesus that is necessary if we're going to follow him. You've got to be ready for that. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than, its ma- than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you also. Cross is foolish to the world, but it's what God uses to save. Well, you can imagine the Corinthians getting a little bit peeved by this. You know, they're interested in what's strong and shiny, and and, and this sounds very, very different. And Paul, it seems, wants to sort of drive that home to them. So this brings us to our next point. In calling his people, we're only going to say a word on this, in calling his people, God loves to choose the weak. It's as if Paul says to them, look, you think you need proof of this? Have a look around the congregation. Not many of you, you see, verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to choose the wise, to shame the wise. So he's saying, look at you. You're a bit of a motley crew. Now, it's not that everyone was like that. There was one or two uh, influential people. Gaius, who was the synagogue ruler, had been converted, you remember. Uh, but, but, But by and large... Many of those who made up the Corinthian church were were drawn from those that the world would say were insignificant. Now, as we said, it's not everyone, it's not any, not any of you were wise by human standards, but not many of you. In the days of the the Whitfield revivals, there was a a great story of the Countess of Huntington. She was converted. She was converted. She was aristocracy. And she said, she used to say, I'm converted because of an M. Not many of you. The difference between not many of you and not any of you. And I'm sure if you're here today and you're royalty, you'd be encouraged. There is hope for you. Not loads, but, but, but hope for you nonetheless. We're more like the Corinthians than we would care to admit. Aren't we impressed when we hear of people in public life or in media and they're Christians, and we think, oh, isn't that fantastic? What influence they're going to have. And yet, we overlook the fact that God most normally draws his church from those who are not impressive. There's a reason for that. You see it here, verse 29. So that no one may boast before him. You see, there's not going to be anybody in heaven who's going to be able to say, well, you know, uh, 
lots of people in my street heard the gospel. But I was the only one who was intelligent enough to respond, and here I am in heaven. Or, or, or I, I was wealthy enough to hire a personal tutor to take me through it all, and, and so here I am in heaven. No, it's because of him that we will be there. It's because of him, verse 30, that you are in Christ Jesus. And he's become for us all the things that we need. Righteousness, holiness, redemption. A right standing with God. Separated from the world to him. Redemption bought back from this slavery that our sin had put us into. He has done it all. It's all because of him. And so you see, if, if, if you're a Christian, that, that should really resonate in your hearts. Why are you here? Well, because God has saved me. He has rescued you. He has done it. Praise him. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is really good news because, because the gospel doesn't say to you, sort yourself out and then you can come to Jesus. Or, or figure it out and then you can come to Jesus. It doesn't say to those miners, climb up and I'll meet you halfway. Jesus says, I'm coming down. I've come down. You believe. This is what is right at the heart of, of, of the Bible's message. The cross, foolish to the world, but is what God uses to save. And God drawing the weak to himself to shame the wise so that no man may boast before him. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we do come to you. We don't like to acknowledge that we are weak. But Lord, we know that we are. But we thank you that to those who are weak and heavy laden, Jesus issues such an invitation to come to him to find rest. Help us to know, O oh Lord, that it is because of him that we may be in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.